Uh, Kira Sheard, uh, who you just saw, she's actually a gospel artist uh, who, she would say, grew up feeling a lot of pressure. Uh, her mother, Kira's mother, was a Grammy award-winning gospel singer herself, and her father was the pastor of a megachurch. Uh, Kira says that she felt uh, plenty of judgment growing up. How she dressed, how she behaved, how she looked. She couldn't make any mistakes, and when she did, they turned into huge deals. Now, Kira learned to deal with it, though. She came to accept God's grace offered to uh, her in Jesus, and as you can tell, she is now leaving, living a life of freedom and joy. Her, her brother had it rougher, though. Uh, Jay Drew is himself now a famous musician, but he has complained publicly about church people for whom he was just never good enough. He says he still believes, but he's not too excited about going to church or hanging out with the judgmental religious people of his youth. Kira and Drew, uh, Jay Drew are not alone. The Christian church has always had a judgment problem. And one of the most commonly cited reasons that people leave the church or reject Jesus is the perceived judgmentalism of his hypocritical followers. Christians sometimes preach love but practice hate. In a book from a few years ago called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity, the author points out that nine out of ten non-Christian 20-something-year-olds view Christians as judgmental people. So nine out of ten non-Christian young people say that our judgmentalism is one of the reasons they are not following Jesus. Now, I will go on record as saying that I think that the problems of judgmental Christianity get a tad exaggerated. I've personally met far more gracious and accepting Christians than I have judgmental ones. Maybe I'm just hanging out with the wrong crowd, but I'm glad for it. I, I think judgmental Christians just tend to be louder than uh, non-judgmental types. It's the judgmental Christians that hold up signs at funerals and go on social media rants. The non-judgmental ones like us, we just lay low and sit back and judge them for it. <laughs> but I know judgmental Christianity is a problem. I mean, I am both a victim and a practitioner of judgmental Christianity. As a victim, I've been judged by what I believe or don't believe as a pastor. I've been judged for how I dress or behave. I've been judged for how I lead my church or preach my sermons. I've been judged for my language or my t-shirts. But before you feel a smidge sorry for me, you need to know that I am also a practitioner. I am also a big part of the problem. Try not to as I might. I find myself judging all kinds of people. I'm actually pretty good at it. <laughs> uh, I, I can judge parents. I can judge children. I can judge congregants. I can judge neighbors. I can judge rich people. I can judge poor people. I can judge celebrities. I'm really good at judging celebrities. I judge people at Walmart. I judge people at Target. <laughs> I judge sports announcers. <laughs> I judge poorly behaved pets. <laughs> I won't pretend to not be part of the problem here. I won't pretend to not being one of those church people uh, that drove Jay Drew from church. I know there's someone out there, or 12, or 50, or 200 people, who are not following Jesus because at some point they felt judged by me. So when it comes to preaching a sermon on judging people less, I have a lot of logs to remove from my own eyes before I even attempt to help you remove the speck from yours. I therefore uh, take up this topic with great fear and trepidation. 
But it is the next topic in our series, in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. So take up this topic with fear and trepidation, I shall. Let's do our humble best to try to talk about how not to judge each other. If you're just joining us this morning, we're uh, in the middle of a sermon series here at Rooftops called Religion Redefined. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know, it's Jesus' big manifesto recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, It's, as we've seen, not for easy listening or for casual Christianity. It's for people who want to leave the crowd and take Jesus' radical expectations seriously about what it means to be a child of God. Now, we've actually finished the first couple chapters of the sermon, and this morning we're entering the home stretch. But if you think maybe over a few chapters things get easier in the Sermon on the Mount, they do not. (laughs) They actually get pretty intense. And we're going to start chapter 3 by uh, studying the the first passage in the chapter. It comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. It's all about judgment. So let me go ahead and read it to you. Do not judge. Or you too will be judged. From the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me, let me, Let me take that speck out of your eye. When all the time there's a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck from your brothers. Probably you know this passage. Maybe somebody has quoted it at you. (laughs) Maybe you have quoted it to somebody. And it is an important passage that we're going to talk about, but first let's go ahead and put it in context. Remember, Jesus' purpose here in the Sermon on the Mount is to inspire and lead his people to righteousness, true righteousness. Righteousness is the holiness of God lived out in our private, personal, and our social lives. Uh, The people of Jesus' day were very religious, but they weren't very righteous. They they practiced a a shallow form of righteousness that they learned from their leaders, the Pharisees. As we've seen, so much of the Sermon on the Mount is targeted at people who follow the Pharisees, or even the Pharisees themselves. Uh, The Pharisees were a very proud group of legalistic Jewish leaders who did their absolute best to live according to the Jewish law, but they missed the point of the law. They prayed, but not very sincerely. They did not murder people, but neither did they love them. But not only were the Pharisees modeling a shallow form of righteousness, but they also thought it was their responsibility to enforce, to enforce their righteousness on the people. The Pharisees really did think it was their job to call people out and condemn them for not living up to their moral standards. The Pharisees were kind of like the morality police in Iran. Have you guys been following the the riots and the protests that are taking place in Iran? Uh, They started, the protests started several weeks ago in the morality police, and that's actually what they're called, the morality police in Iran. They arrested a Muslim woman for not wearing her headscarf, She died in custody, likely the result of abuse, 
And it unleashed decades of pent-up anger that the, that the government is having a hard time containing. We see the Pharisees in the Gospels behaving the same way. Calling people out, dragging sinners in the street, demanding that they be judged and punished. They literally saw themselves as the morality police. Now, Jesus knows that we need moral leaders. He knows that we need accountability. But there's a a, a way to offer moral leadership and a way not to. So not only does Jesus not want us learning righteousness from the Pharisees, but he doesn't want us enforcing that brand of righteousness on other people. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's talking about how we can help one another grow in righteousness without being judgmental jerks about it. So that context, let's go ahead and jump back into the passage. Here in this paragraph, Jesus talks about judgmentalism. And and I'll give you my outline up front. Jesus gives us a command not to judge. The consequences of our judgment. A contention about why we must not judge. And lastly, a correction on how we are to love people instead. A command, consequences, a contention, and a correction. So this morning's sermon is brought to you by the letters C and O. It's brought to you by the state of Colorado. Right. Uh, so first, Jesus gives us a, a, a command not to judge. Do not judge, he says. Now, the Greek word for this phrase, do not judge, is actually fairly broad. It can mean any number of things. I mean, not all judgments are created equal. To judge can mean to make wise decisions or just to make proper evaluations of things or just to adjudicate in court. But Jesus is clearly using this word in in a negative way. He's using the the word to refer to something we'll call critical condemnation. It's what we do when we decide we don't like someone and we treat them like it, however subtly. Maybe we don't just not like them, but we also maybe think we're better than them. Maybe a little. Or that God is more pleased with us than he is with that person. Judgmentalism of this kind is actually what Jesus is describing in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe you remember this story. In the story, two men go up to the temple to pray. Jesus tells the story. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Democrats, Republicans, gay people, Trump supporters, black people, white people. I thank you that I'm not like those people. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Judgmental people have a way of forgetting that they are sinners. They use their own perceived righteousness as a platform from which to look down on others. And for some reason, Christians just have always been really good at this. Uh, we find a way to judge other people. Sometimes we even do it in, in, uh, do it in, the, in the guise of church discipline or loving rebuke. I remember a story that author Mike McCarg told in his book, for example, uh, Finding God in the Waves. Uh, he had a friend who told him that when he was a little boy... 
his family attended a very strict church in the Bible Belt. And one Sunday, his family had to, to skip church because the inspector, they found at the last second, the inspector was going to come inspect their house on Monday, and they needed to paint their house, and they had a day to do it. So they had to skip church to paint their house. And when the church leaders found out about this, they decided to hold a stoning service in which they excommunicated the family publicly for violating the Sabbath, along with another church member who they had found out worked in a convenience store where they sold cigarettes. Christians actually do these kinds of things. Christians actually hold stoning services. We find a way to disapprove of each other, uh, sometimes quite harshly and publicly. But I think what we need to realize is that even though we don't hold stoning services here at Rooftop, and to be sure, we don't. If you're visiting Rooftop this morning and you're wondering, I wonder if this church holds stoning services. We don't. But even though we don't, we can still judge one another in more subtle ways. There are lots of ways that people judge each other, right? Stereotyping, for example. Thinking we know someone based on how they look or where they live is us thinking we're smarter than their circumstances. Gossip. When we think we have the right to spread rumors about someone without them knowing or having the chance to weigh in, that's making ourselves a judge over their reputation. Revenge, giving people the cold shoulders. I mean, you don't need to, like, kill somebody to take revenge on them. Revenge is us giving us ourselves the right to punish. Name-calling, just not loving others. Deciding that we don't have to love that person, even though God tells us to, is us placing ourselves as a judge over them and God himself. No, God, I've judged that that command does not apply to that person. Jesus says not to do these things. Do not judge, do not stereotype, do not gossip. As Paul puts it, I like this verse, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's the command. Don't judge. Now, what happens if we do? Well, then Jesus gives us the consequences for our judgmentalism. Do not judge. Or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Yikes. What happens if we judge? God will judge us. Our judgmentalism towards others is evidence that our heart is not right with him. People filled with self-righteousness have not yet come to know him, maybe never will. As Jesus puts it in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than that Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who think of themselves more highly than they ought will be humbled. They will be judged for putting themselves in the place of God. Now, what does it mean to be judged by God? I mean, let's get specific here. What does it mean to be judged by God? Is Jesus saying that God will send us to hell for being judgmental hypocrites? Uh, yeah. That's what Aiden said. Uh, yeah. Maybe you don't know this, but Jesus actually believed in, very strongly in something that he called the day of judgment. Jesus talked about the day of judgment a lot more than we would be comfortable knowing. Very frequently in the Gospels, he warned people, believers and non-believers alike, that there would be a day, a time, at which all people will be judged. We will all stand in the courtroom of heaven and hear our crimes against God and others read aloud. And unless we have been truly forgiven, we'll be judged for our sins. 
Jesus is saying that people who put themselves in the place of God will one day be put in place by God. That's the irony here. Those who judge others as God will eventually be judged by God. Judges will be judged. I was thinking about this uh, earlier in the week. It was election week. I don't know if you realize that. (laughs) Did you know that it was election week? We faced the midterms this week. Uh, So far, it seems as though our democracy remains intact. So, But I always get, I don't know about you, I always get confused voting, though. I mean, I'm grateful for the privilege and the responsibility and the honor of voting, but I really don't know how to vote. These issues require more political intelligence than I have, honestly. I mean, should the National Guard be a thing, its own thing? That was apparently on the ballot. I I don't know. (laughs) Should I know that? Uh, Nor do I know how to vote for the judges. You know what I'm talking about when you vote for the judges? Like, should these judges be retained in office? I I don't know. You tell me. How did they do? I don't even know their names. I, I mean, I hope I never meet them. In fact, critics of this system, critics of the retention system for, for judges, and there are critics, they actually say that this retention system, it's actually kind of meaningless, like 99.99% of the judges get retained. Every now and then, though, judges get voted out. A couple years ago, for, for example, St. Louis County Associate Circuit Judge Judy Draper, Judge Judy, as it were, uh, she was voted off the bench by voters. She received very low marks from the Judicial Review Board for being prepared for cases and making reasonable judgment based on the evidence. And voters responded, giving her only 48% of the vote. You need 50%. So it was only the fourth time since 1960 that a judge had not been retained. So occasionally judges get judged. It could have been worse, though. This past year, two state judges in Pennsylvania were sent to prison for something called the Cash for Kids scheme. Judges Michael Conahan and Mark Ciavarella were convicted of shutting down a state-run juvenile detention facility in Pennsylvania and working behind the scenes with a for-profit juvenile jail. So the jail got reimbursed from the state for every child they received, and they would send the judges kickbacks for every child sent. So over several years, the judges sent 2,300 juveniles to the facility, ignoring their ages or the circumstances of their crime. Judges Conahan and Ciavarella were both disbarred or in prison. 4,000 of their judgments have been overturned. They have been ordered to pay $200 million to the juveniles affected, even though they don't have a penny. Those kids will never see a penny. Judges get judged. And they should be, including us. As the hypocrites we are, we don't have the right to judge other people. And God's going to straighten that out. And the consequences of God's judgment might be more severe than we think. Jesus describes conditions in hell that are far worse than prison. When we put ourselves over others, over the law of love, God will put himself over us. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. This is Christ's command, the consequences of violating it. But why? Well, here we find Jesus' contention about why we should not judge. We should not judge for a couple reasons. We should not judge because this is just not our place. The Bible says that God is the judge. 
as Paul uh, puts it in Corinthians, I care very little if I am judged by you, you, or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. I wish I could say that. (laughs) But it is the Lord who judges me. I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. God is the judge. That's his point. But also we shouldn't judge, and this is Jesus' point, because we are guilty of the same things. As Jesus says it, uh, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. So Jesus is being ironic here, and, and even a little bit funny, you know, describing this image of a, of a, of a blind guy trying to, trying to remove a, a plank from, or a speck from somebody else's eyeball. But this is what we do. We concern ourselves with other people's quirks, but are so distracted by other people that we remind blind to our own massive problems and the giant two-by-four in our own eyeballs. Paul picks up this theme later in the book of Romans. He writes, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. It's sort of an open secret that judgmental people find a way to not like in others what they detest in themselves. Uh, For example, I sometimes, this is a confession, this is a mission, but I, I sometimes find myself judging rich people. But I know why. Because in my heart, I'm a materialist, and I'm jealous. And I don't like that about myself. I find myself judging people who watch a lot of television or play a lot of video games or are addicted to their screens. I think it's a terrible waste of time compared to all the important things we have to do on earth. Again, I share this as a confession. But I know why I'm like this. I'm judgmental because I'm jealous. If I could, I would sit around and watch Netflix all day. If I could, that's what I would do. In my heart, I'm actually a very... A lazy, addictive person with a very addictive personality. I, I know these things about myself. I've been to enough therapy. I don't like this part of me. So instead of dealing with it, I'm going to judge it in other people. And sometimes the hypocrisy is so blatant. Sometimes I will judge other drivers who are driving while on their cell phones. I will judge them for driving with their cell phones with my cell phone in my hand. I just tell myself, I'm better at this than they are. (laughs) This is Jesus' point. We find a way to distract ourselves from our own sins by focusing on the behavior of others. In fact, let's be honest. Let's be honest. A lot of you are judging me right now. Maybe you're judging me for being so judgmental. I can't believe Pastor Matt is like this. I mean, he's a pastor. He should be like this. Well, gotcha. I mean... (laughs) You really want to judge me on Do Not Judge Sunday? (laughs) If you want a clue about how you need to repent before the Lord, ask yourself this question, honestly. What drives you crazy in other people? How do you find yourself being unfairly critical of others? What type of people do you just not like? In all likelihood, that's your log. In all likelihood, that's the two-by-four in your eye. 
what you can't stand in others. So command, consequence, contention, do not judge. What happens if you do? You will be judged. Why? Because it's not our place, and we who judge are guilty of the same things. But this leads to the final couple of verses in the passage. Jesus' correction on how we're going to love people instead. Do not look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Jesus says what you do first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus says not to judge other people for the speck in their own eye, but he doesn't say that we should just kind of walk away and leave it at that. No, that's not the takeaway. Jesus says we should take the opportunity to remove the plank so that we can see clearly to help someone with a speck in their own eyeball. Basically, Jesus tells us to remove so we may reprove. (laughs) Remove the plank from your own eye and then reprove your brother or your sister. Do you know what it means to reprove someone? No, yes. It means to gently instruct. Remove. Reprove. See, Jesus' vision for his family, his church, is not that we all back off from one another slowly and not expose ourselves as hypocrites by not saying anything to anybody about how they're sinning. His vision is not that we all not judge each other and leave each other alone. His vision is actually that we get the help we need so that we can help one another with our shared sin. His vision is that we remove so that we can reprove. I was talking about this with uh, Paul Mueller the other day. Paul's one of our, our musicians. He's a piano player back there a sometime elder here. Uh, Paul, if you don't know this about Paul, Paul is also a huge, huge Friends fan, TV show. Uh, Paul has every episode memorized. He makes frequent pilgrimages to the Friends set in Hollywood. And he was very excited about Matthew Perry's new memoir, which came out recently, actually came out a couple weeks ago. It's only been out a couple weeks. Paul has read it twice already. He'd be happy to tell you about it. That's all exaggeration. I don't think Paul has watched a single episode of Friends. But I was talking to him about this biography, or this memoir. Now, if you don't know, Matthew Perry uh, was one of the actors in Friends, uh, one of the most successful TV shows of all time. You might not know this, but during most of the history of the show, though, Perry was battling a terrible drug and alcohol addiction. He says he was only kind of sober, like, one of the 17 seasons, or however many seasons there were. (laughs) One of 10, one of 17. (laughs) Uh, It started, his addiction started when he was like 14 years old. Uh, The crew of the show uh, sometimes had to drive him from filming back to rehab. Uh, And at one point, he realized he had spent half his life in rehab facilities. He used to take 55 Vicodin a day. No exaggeration. (laughs) And uh, he had five different doctors prescribing him pain pills uh, for all kinds of made-up illnesses. Eventually, his colon burst. He had to wear a colostomy bag. He endured countless stomach surgeries due to damage of alcohol and drugs. A few years ago, he actually went into a drug-induced coma. His heart stopped beating for five minutes while the operating crew broke five ribs, performing CPR on him, barely bringing him back to life. At times during his battle, Matthew Perry would have just preferred to be dead. But something kept him pushing forward, getting the help he needed. Even in in the depths of his addiction, something kept him pushing forward, getting the help he needed. What was it? He wanted to make sure 
that somebody else might not have to go through this. Even after he got out of rehab and started living clean, he wasn't too excited about writing a memoir. I mean, who wants to, who wants to write about that stuff? He nearly gave up on several occasions, but as he said in an interview about the book, whenever I bumped into something I really didn't want to share, I would just think of all the people I wanted to help and it would keep me going. In fact, the book is dedicated for all the sufferers out there. You know who you are. Helping others became Matthew Perry's motivation. It's one of the things that made him get help and is helping him to stay clean. Instead of distracting himself from his own problems by judging people for their own addictions, he endured rehab and therapy and wrote a book so that other people might have a success story to be inspired by. Now, he's even a sponsor for several people through AA. This is what Jesus is telling us. Be the success story that other people need to see. Remove the plank so you can gently help other people remove the speck. Remove and reprove. I mean, you need to know, you need to know you're not the only sinner here, right? We're all sinners. You're not the only addict. You're not the only liar. You're not the only lazy Christian. You're not the only hypocrite. You're not the only Pharisee. You're not the only materialist. You're not the only racist. You're not the only sinner. We're all sinners. We're all those things. Now we can be forgiven of those sins. God can forgive anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything. God can forgive anything. What does Jesus say in the Gospel of Mark? Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven. How many of their sins? All their sins. And every slander they utter, God can forgive anything. If you're not yet forgiven of your sins, you can be forgiven. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven of your sins. You know how you're forgiven of your sins? It's easy. You say, God, I don't want to be forgiven of my sins. That's what you do. I need to be forgiven of my sins, and he'll forgive you. And then you get baptized, show the world you're forgiven of your sins. It's that easy. That's how you get forgiven. But even after that, there's more to do. The Holy Spirit wants to change you. The Holy Spirit wants to remove the sin from your life so that you can help other people in the way that God helped you. So look at yourself. How are you still sinning? How are you still sinning? If you need a clue, look at how you judge others. You're probably doing the same things. Instead of judging them, repent, get help. How do you get help? Matthew Perry says he spent $9 million getting clean. You might not have $9 million. <laughs> but how much are you willing to spend to get rid of sin? Are you willing to meet with a pastor or elder for prayer and counsel? Are you willing to fess up in therapy? Are you willing to, like, cancel Netflix to play for, pay for therapy? No, oh, my gosh, no. <laughs> are, are you willing to join a recovery group? They're free. Are you willing to find an accountability partner who can call you out? Are you willing to sit down with a loving, trusted friend and say, ask, what's wrong with me? You willing to do that? You are? Then do it! <laughs> trusted, loving friend, what's wrong with me? Tougher question. Are you willing to be honest with yourself? Are you willing to be honest with yourself? Am I? I think so, but am I? Other people in our lives need the help we can give them. So remove it. Remove the lock. By the power of God, remove the lock. Not so you can judge others as less than you, but so that you can help them know the freedom and the joy of Christ. 
We're going to close our, our message this morning with some time of reflection. On the second Sunday of every month here at Rooftop, we lean into prayer. Prayer is one of our key, six key practices here at Rooftop. It's when we talk to God. It's when we tell him what we need. It's when we just pray for each other. The Bible says that God meets us in prayer. 